Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Doing pretty well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing all right. I am grateful to have my family close. This is part two of our interview with John Palmer, who lost his wife, Katie Palmer, back in April of 2020 in a very tragic automobile incident. And I just want to, like I said, in the uh, first part of this interview, in the in the first episode, it's not a disclaimer for anything particularly graphic in regards to the accident, but it's a disclaimer to prepare yourself for the emotion that's that's uh, coming with this, especially, like you said, Tim, you're, you're grateful to have your family close to you. This is someone who had his family completely ripped apart out of the blue for no better reason than they were walking one morning. And it makes no sense. So yes, that that's my disclaimer. Just brace yourself, but you have to hear it. Like you have to hear his his words, you have to hear his voice, his emotion, and how he wraps the whole thing up. Okay, and go to justiceforkatiepalmer.com and there's links to their social pages as well. Make sure to follow it and please share. This is something that the Palmers want. They want accountability and justice for Katie Palmer. And when you're on that website, go to the Get Involved tab and it says how you can help. You can share Katie's story like you said. You can voice your opinion to Texas state officials. You can sign the petition and you can ask your favorite content creator to cover Katie's story. We said it before, and we'll say it again. Our peers in this podcasting industry, if you haven't covered her story, get in touch with John through that website, or you can contact us and we'll make the connection for you. It's important to tell her story because they simply want justice. There's also a link there to file a complaint against a state trooper to the Texas Department of Safety Inspector General. So you can follow that link to uh, voice your opinion like they encourage you to do. All right. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. Follow us at crawlspace-media.com. And one more quick bit of news before we get to the interview. If anybody is in town in Worcester, in Wormtown, on Saturday, November 13th, the show Death by Incarceration, hosted by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken, that's a show that's on our Crawl Space Media Network, they will be performing live, live at the Brick Box Theater in Worcester, Tickets are available via the link in the show notes. You can also check them out on their social media. They'll be posting about that with the link to the ticket sales. Their Twitter is DB Incarceration, so they will uh, have that link in their Twitter and on their Instagram. Again, that's Saturday, November 13th, with special guest Nikki Bell from the Lyft organization right there in the heart of Worcester, Massachusetts. There was a, a grand jury that was convened, right? There was a grand jury um, on August 19th. And a grand jury in Texas consists of 12. That day, one juror called, called in sick. So that dropped us down to 11. And then another juror recused himself because he either knew Corey or he knew me. Um they did not replace those jurors with alternates. So we went in there with 10. And in Texas, you have to get nine grand jurors um, to vote for an indictment. And so we had to get nine out of 10. 
So, so it would have been nine out of 12. Sorry to interrupt. It would have been nine out of 12 if there were 12 people there. Correct. So if you have one person, if you had two people that just didn't, didn't like the color of my shirt that day for, for one reason or another, could have been a myriad of, of reasons why I, I asked the prosecutor, Carrie Ashmore that day, why weren't the other two, you know, uh, juror seats filled? And, um, his response was, I don't know. Uh, didn't, didn't get a reason why we didn't get a full grand jury. I know now, um, as of 2021, there has been legislation that has been passed and enacted to where you have to have 12. So, yeah, I mean, and there are some, some cases where only nine grand jurors were present and you had to get all nine to, you know, vote. They didn't have all the evidence that day. They did not have the phone records. Um, they also did not have that third party report. So they had DPS did not recreate the scene. Okay. Uh, which is from other law enforcement officers and other troopers, I've heard that's crazy. I mean, this is what DPS does when it comes to traffic accidents. State troopers, that's that's one of their sole responsibilities is to investigate these accidents, or in my case, incidents, because I don't think this was an accident, and um, supposed to gather as much information as, as possible. Obviously, from what I've said, um, Tariq Al-Khatib did not do his job that, that day at all. He didn't collect the evidence that was in Corey Foster's body, uh, nor did he mark the scene. Uh, DPS as a whole failed because they did not recreate the accident. Grayson County hired a third party uh, firm um, to come out and recreate that wreck. They did that. Um, the gentleman that reconstructed that testified in front of the grand jury. Now, what the grand jury didn't have was his final report. The grand jury was on August 19th. The date of the final report was August 25th, six, six days, which there's, there's, there's no reason for that at all. That report was very damning towards Corey Foster, very damning put all the liability, obviously, on Corey Foster, um, listed everything that he did wrong, uh, did mention um, that alcohol could have been a contributing factor, did mention that it didn't matter if the fog or the sun obstructed his vision as a driver and an operator of, of a motor vehicle. Uh, those are conditions that other drivers have to deal with as well. If you cannot drive and you can't, pardon me, if you cannot see, then you should not drive. And you sure should not drive for 38 seconds or three tenths of a mile. He made that decision to continue to operate his motor vehicle in a reckless manner. That was not given to the grand, grand jury at all. Yeah, I mean, you, you took the words out of my mouth. I'm sitting here listening to this and thinking, it doesn't matter. Like, we've all driven in a car that has a foggy window or a windshield, and we've all driven into the sun, and we slow down, and we put the visor down, and we, we're, like, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, like, hyper-aware when I'm in that situation because I don't want something like that happening. That's, I mean, at the very, very, very least, it's, it's, it's just reckless driving. Not just, but you know what I'm saying. Like, it's just... It's just reckless. If that's not what reckless drive driving is, then I, I would like for somebody to, to, to tell me what it is. Well, maybe he had to have been on the phone at the time. Oh, he was. He absolutely was. So we, we have somebody who was visually distracted, couldn't see out of his wind, windshield, 
um, whether he wants to blame it on the fog, whether he wants to blame it on the sun. I've, I've never heard the weatherman tell me it's going to be a really foggy, sunny day, uh, which if, if you look at the DPS report, they interchange. I think they only mentioned condensation once, which that, that's, that's what it was. It was condensation on his windshield that allowed him not to see. But the report says fog all over the place. So he says that he was distracted by the fog and the sun, which you, you can't have both. I mean, I, at least I, I don't think I've, I've, I've never been out on a foggy day and been, man, this sun is horrible. Never. So it was the condensation on his windshield that he could not clear, obviously for three tenths of a mile. And it was the also added excuse of, I guess, the sun hitting the condensation that further visually distracted him. It was also the manual distraction that he had in his hand by dialing the number. And let's also throw in the fact that um, his cognitive functions were impaired, slowed, or dulled by the fact that he had a strong presence of alcohol coming from his body. And we don't know what else was in his body. And the reason why I say that is because if you look at the body camera footage, from, from that day, very emotionally flat. I believe that he was on some other sort of substance, whether it was, um, I, you know, I don't want to make any speculations, but there was, in my opinion, some something else that day that impaired him cognitively. So there are three major issues there that led to him speeding, crossing over the roadway, hitting two people, not knowing what he hit, sending one to the ICU and killing another. And instead of being taken to the hospital for a blood test, Tarif Al-Khatib loaded him up in his cruiser, drove him home. He went home after? Yeah, he, he, he went home. The trooper... Um, allowed him to get his two Glocks out of his truck. That. <clears throat> what? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So when they were doing the inventory of his truck, they asked if he had any weapons. And he said, yes, I, I have two Glocks. Uh, the trooper then asked him, are they loaded? He said, yes. The trooper goes, OK, why don't you, why don't you get them out and hand them to me? <laughs> what? It's all going to be listed down in inventory. Okay. Uh, Texoma there, Auto Care. Two we're pistols. Have to get it. Let's get those pistols out. Yeah, let's get those out. You want to do it? Or no, no, you can get them. Are they loaded? Yeah. You're doing good with that. Yeah. Two blocks, huh? Yeah. And I'm not even a block man. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you guys a question. Um, if you ever got pulled over by a police officer, and the police officer asked you if you had loaded weapons in your vehicle. And you said, yes. What are the chances that that officer is going to go, okay, why don't you go ahead and hand them to me? 0.0. And I'll tell you why Tarif Al-Khatib let Corey Foster do that. It's because Tarif Al-Khatib knew Corey. Tarif Al-Khatib had a pre-existing relationship with Corey Foster, again, on social media, because that's our only platform other than these great podcasts that we've, we've, we've done. 
Um, I, I've got pictures of them at a Halloween party together the, the year before, which is less than four or five months. And then the wives at a Christmas party arm, arm in arm. They were friendly. They knew each other. And the wives used to work together. They both were hairdressers. Um, Grayson County is a small county, but it's not a tiny county. You know, there's probably 100,000 that are in Grayson County. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like a small county out in West Texas that, you know, you know, encompasses hundreds of thousands of square miles and has, you know, 30,000 people. He knew Corey, again, just to go back to that one statement that I made where he was talking to the other troopers, stating that as, as soon as I walked up and saw it was him, I was like, he's probably drunk. So why a trooper would, would make that statement? I don't know, but I do not believe that he thought that the um, body camera of Trooper David Taylor was was on. Well, it was on and it recorded everything he he said, and we've already released that out. We've given that to the DA as well, and um, the way that they handled themselves that day on on scene was anything but professional. Going back, and I'm and I'm sorry. I hope I'm not jumping all over the place here. Tarif had two conversations with a supervisor. And I was also told by um, law enforcement officers and other uh, state troopers that for, with something like this, a supervisor should have come out on scene. For some reason, they didn't. Um, but they talked to him twice on the phone. And when Tarif relayed what happened to Katie, uh, to, to his supervisor on the phone, his words were, she just whacked her head real good. Those were his exact words. Okay. Fast forward to when it's just the troopers on, on scene and all the ambulance have gone, the wrecker has left with, with the truck. Um, I'm going to use some explicit language here. I'm sorry. Tarif's words to the other troopers were, he, he knocked the out of her dude. Those were his words to the troopers when he thought the other body camera was off. So what he tells his supervisor and what he thinks are two different things. Now, something else, going back to when he uh, gave Corey Foster a, a ride home, it's DPS policy that if you have anybody in your vehicle that you leave your body camera on or you leave the uh, in-unit camera on. Uh, when Tarif went to go take Corey Foster home, he had the camera off the entire time. So that whole conversation going back to his house and his house is only three tenths of a mile, mile away going back to his house. There is no recording at all. And there's no recording of, of a man who you let back into your vehicle with two loaded weapons. That's a gross deviation from DPS policy. How is this person still in a position of authority? He's been, he's been promoted twice since. <laughs> oh my God. What I've been told by other troopers is that sometimes promotions take place to get guys like Tarif off the street, which is completely backwards. But he's been in for 13 years and he gets promoted once and then he gets promoted again because of time and service. And now he's only on the road two times a month. So he won't have the opportunity to make mistakes. And uh, throughout this incident, did Foster ever say where he was going? His words were that he was headed to go 
pick up some guys to go do some work. Those were his exact words. He was headed to go pick up some guys to go do some work. That's all. Did anyone ever confirm that uh, that story with, with the so-called guys? That, that would mean that an investigation would have had to have take, taken place, right? And we, we, we know that that didn't happen. Do you know who he called? I have an idea, but I, but I don't, don't know. It would just be speculating. I know that the district attorney's office has the phone records. I believe that they are, not that they are, I believe that they should look into that to see exactly where he was going, especially a phone call that was made 31 seconds prior to him calling 911. I think that's pretty important. I, I think you would have to agree with that. I, I think whoever he was speaking with, he must have said, I think I just hit something. I mean, how are they not a witness? Yeah. Yeah. If if you look at the phone records, because I've I've seen them. So so the phone rang for 24 seconds and then it then the line seizure was five seconds. So what happened is that he placed this this call and my my timeline, which I believe is the only um, plausible timeline is that as he was placing his call a second or two before he hit us is when he placed it. The phone rang for 24 seconds. No one picked up and it went to voicemail for, for five. Now five seconds is not enough time to leave a message, even with just a default voicemail. I mean, it's probably seven seconds or so, but that gave him enough time to place that call for 24 seconds. It went over to voicemail or picked up on an answering machine. And, um, then he looked and looked down and had the phone in his hand into into that call nine one one call, you know, and it was two two seconds later. So um, don't believe he had any contact with anybody on on the other side of that line. But there there's probably a recording on on the voicemail of on his end. I, I would imagine. I believe I I don't think that there is. Again, I don't I I don't know. I don't know if five seconds would be a long long enough time. Oh, right. To go through the prompt, hey, you've missed a call from, you know, sorry, I couldn't get to your phone. Please leave a message and and I'll get back to you. Thanks. You know, click. So I I don't I don't believe one was left, but um, it'd be really good if somebody did uh, some investigating, um, you know, i.e. the DA or, you know, back then the DPS uh, and find out if if there was a voicemail. And I really hope that the district attorney pays attention to that and, um you know, ask questions this time around. You've done a great job gathering information as much as you seemingly can. And I know Iris has helped you a lot too. What's the story with this anonymous package that you received? So I received some information uh, from somebody who had been following what had been going on um, with, with, with Katie. Uh, this person reached out to me and um dropped off some material relating to the last arrest of County Judge Bill Majors. Uh, Bill Majors is the acting uh, county judge here in Grayson County, which obviously you you guys know the uh, county judge is the de facto mayor of the county. Okay. Um, they said to pay, pay attention to, um, to a missed call. I said, all right. So played that footage from what I read. He was at a, like a bowling alley bar in Sherman left. 
there was a DPS officer and a city cop that saw or heard him crash into a light pole. So they went over there and he had pulled into a gas station and that's when the body camera runs. And it shows, um, I want to preface this by saying that me releasing that on our social media, I was not, was not going after Bill at all. I was going after the phone call that he made. So I just want to make sure that, you know, that's, I, I do not want to get political at all. That's, that's not my agenda, um, you know, with justice for Katie Palmer. My, my agenda is exactly what it is, justice for Katie Palmer. So watching this body camera footage from the trooper, um, he takes Bill out. He determines that Bill is indeed intoxicated and Bill had left his phone in his truck and the DPS officer went back to go get his phone, which would have been great if that happened in our, our case. And they actually reviewed it. And he saw that there was a missed call from Brett Smith. Brett Smith is our district attorney. So as it appears, the county judge knew that he was intoxicated. Um, he had a DPS unit and a um, police unit behind him. Um, he placed a call to Brett Smith. And I believe probably it would appear uh, to discuss what was about to happen. Um, I took offense to this when I saw it uh, for the simple fact that right there, I'm tired of the good old boys club. I believe that's what happened with uh, Corey and Tarif. And I believe that's what, that's what it appeared that our county judge was, was doing. He was trying, trying to get off uh, for being intoxicated. Uh, I think at that point he was three times over the limit um, when he hit this, this pole uh, and was trying to get off. And you know what happens when you keep on letting guys off. Um, you go walking on your street and you get run over at 7.45 in the morning. That's what happens. It's unbelievable. Like, it just infuriates me that there's never, like, how is there never accountability? These these stories that we hear, and it's it's over and over and over and over, and then, like, the worst tragedy happens, and then it's like, eh, we're not going to do our job now. I, but we're going to continue to 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 be repeat offenders, and we're going to continue continue to contribute to, uh, like you said, the good old boys club. Like, how? Where is the accountability? There's none. There's none. And and that 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 was. Um, and again, I'll I'll say one last thing thing about Bill. Then I then I want to get off Bill because I I don't want to turn it political at all. But um, that that was his fifth time to be arrested for a DUI, his fifth time. Uh, now, this is only his second conviction, um, but his fifth time. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. 
Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. The grand jury was two and a half, three, three hours, which perplexes me. That perplexes me how you couldn't go in there. It would have been nice if they had that report from the third party to go, that's it. You know, just just read the summary of findings, read all 12. And then a, a grand jury does not convict people. They indict them. They, they say there's enough evidence to move forward with a criminal trial. OK, so I, I don't know if the district attorney's office had a pseudo trial in there and told them only vote for an indictment if you would vote this man guilty. That's not what a grand jury does. The grand jury looks at the evidence and goes, there's enough here for there to be a, a more thorough investigation and for this to be tried in open court. I don't believe that was the case. I don't know how the DA's office let this drag on for three hours. I think there was an hour of uh, 45 minutes of deliberation, then uh, you know, two hours and 15 minutes of testifying. I had to testify in there because I obviously was was a witness. Uh, Tarif Al-Khatib had to testify and the third party um, had to tes- testify. Um, and we all know, and this is coming from every lawyer that I've talked to, every lawyer. There's not a single lawyer that will disagree with me when I say if a district attorney wants somebody indicted, they go to the grand jury and they ask for an indictment. That's what they do. That's that's what's done. Uh, but that's not what happened. And I don't know. I I don't understand the dog and pony show that went on um, August nineteenth. But it was a miscarriage of justice completely, and it's left our family with this hollow feeling uh, again for the past seventeen months. Jesus Christ, I can't imagine your frustration and uh, we can only put a call to action out. What is your what is your call to action for for the listeners when you go on these platforms? We, we need as much support on social media as possible. We had one call to action months ago and we contacted Brett Smith and asked him to relook at this case. Represent it in front in front of another grand jury, and I think I would ask the same same thing now. The DA has the phone records. The DA has has had that third party report. Brett Smith needs to bring this back in front of a grand jury. There is no reason why he shouldn't, especially with those phone records. Especially since a grand jury didn't see that final report done by that third party. There's no doubt this has to go back in front of another grand jury with all of the evidence and not just in front of a grand jury in front of a full 12 person grand jury, not the 10 that we had before. That would be my call to, to action is to, is to contact Brett Smith again and let him know that um, it's unacceptable that this go on any further. So this, this, this has to go back in front of another grand grand jury. Can you tell us a little bit about Colton's law? Colton Carney was, Going to work one one day, his car broke down. He called his dad for help. His dad worked about an hour away. Colton had some difficulties. I believe he was autistic, had a job, 
very good at his job, loved his job, loved working. Had an issue with a tire, I, I believe. And also, um, I believe he had something wrong with one of his, his legs. He was either on like a, I don't want to say a scooter, but, you know, those pads that you put your, your knee on and you can kind of scoot, scoot on with it. I don't, I don't know how, how, how to say it. He, he had some sort of device and sorry, I'm, I'm going off in a, in a rabbit hole here. Colton's car broke down one day. He was traveling. He was walking along the highway up a ramp and um, some, somebody hit him very early in the morning. That person was never asked if they uh, were under the influence of alcohol. Um, when the, Family asked the police officer why they didn't test the driver for drugs or alcohol. The police officer's response was, it was too early in the morning. No one drinks or does drugs this this early. That that was the, the response. Colton's mother, Michelle Carney, who is about as tough as they are, she, as any mother would be, did not like that response, did not like the fact that the man that just killed her son wasn't even arrested, no grand jury, nothing. She didn't like that. She spent time. She contacted every member in the uh, Texas House of Representatives, and only one member got back to her. That was uh, Representative Terry Meza. And Michelle Carney and Terry Meza drafted a law, which is Colton's law. The spirit of the law, as we intended it to be, was that if any motorist hits a pedestrian and causes either serious bodily injury or death, that motorist will be given a blood test to screen for alcohol or drugs. That was the spirit of the law. And I believe the way that the law is written now, that there has to be an arrest prior to the blood blood test we're we're still working with um uh state senators and rep representatives um just the uh rep the representatives and the state senators that we've worked with the representatives are um representative uh Meza, representative smith and chairman white and then there's two senators um senator springer and in in hall um they have been steadfast in their support for this bill and any amendments that need to be made to this bill. Um, however, that process is to ensure that, again, if a motorist hits a pedestrian and causes either serious injury or death, that it's a mandatory blood test. I don't know why that's not a law already. I know that if I just go up the highway and cross over the Red River into Oklahoma, I've, I've been told that if this were to happen, then it's an immediate blood test, especially if they smell alcohol on you, then that's probable cause there. Texas obviously has different laws. Laws are meant to govern, obviously, but they're also meant to be adapted. And I believe in the situation that we've had um, with our incident, uh, we can definitely see that the laws that are in place now need to be changed. It doesn't need to be up to the officer on scene uh, to say this guy's okay. I I don't believe that um, I don't believe that he's impaired. I believe a blood test should should be drawn.
a blood test should, should be taken. There should not be any doubt. When he performed that PBT 50 minutes after, and it came back a 0.06, that, that should have been probable cause there. I believe that there's cause, there's, there's, there's probable cause that he could have been drunk. We need, we need to go get a blood, blood test test there. Um, believe the way that he was acting, uh, Tarif Al-Khatib was not, does not hold a certification to do field sobriety tests that test for anything else other than alcohol. So these field sobriety tests don't tell you if the person is impaired on any other illicit substance or a prescription, nothing. So when the officer, in this case, Tarif Al-Khatib, made the decision not to get a blood test, um, he destroyed all the evidence that day because all the evidence was being metabolized in Corey Foster's body. And now we'll never, never know. I know, uh, my family knows, and I think anybody that watches that video knows that Corey was under some other substance, and that is my opinion, and that's the opinion of a lot of other people. Uh, but in a criminal court, I'll say, in a criminal court, you cannot prove that because there was no blood test. There's none. We, we know that there was alcohol in his system, and we know 50 minutes after there was a 0 .06 uh, reading, BAC. And that's all that can be proven outside of getting a toxicologist, which I think that would be a very good idea for the DA to do. But um, Colton's Law, House Bill 558, the spirit of that law would be to uh, collect that evidence at the scene and not let it get destroyed, not let it metabolize. What happened that day has left our family with more questions rather than and in answer, a, a blood test would have would have really solved that quick. A blood test would would have given a baseline, and then they could have gone okay. You know, um, two hours after the wreck, he had a you know 0 0.045 based on his weight and the way that you know his body would metabolize this ex ex existing medical issues and what he ate that morning. This is what he would would have been at. Or hey, he had something else in his system. Um, which could have been a, a very high possibility that that, that was, was the case. But, but again, we don't know. And it, it gets me because huh, what I heard a lot of, and we campaigned for this, we lobbied for it. I went down to Austin two or three times. I've spoke with every single office, all 152 or three or four offices down there, um, two or three times each, whether it be a face-to-face -face meeting, a phone call, an email, a tweet, anything I could do to get attention to this law. Um, and it always goes back to probable cause, which again, the probable cause in our case would have been the alcohol, uh, the fact that there was reckless driving. Um, and you've got one person going to the ICU, one, one person uh, it's being care flighted to uh, to the trauma center in Plano, but everybody is very quick to say, "Well, we can't just go take some somebody's blood." You know that 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 driver has rights. What about the rights of the pedestrian that didn't do a damn thing? 
all I did and all we were guilty of was walking as a couple down the road to go look at some damn birds and come back. That's all we did that day. And we were lawful in how we were walking. We did nothing wrong that day at all. But yet we have to make sure that we don't infringe upon the rights of this, this person that just ended a life. And I was about a foot away, a foot and a foot, a half away. Had I been a foot over to, to my right, my kids would have been without parents. But it's okay because we didn't infringe upon the rights of this driver that had alcohol in his system already. I, I don't have a reason at all. Where where are the rights of the victims? Where? Well, yeah, people have this very skewed, warped view of what rights actually are. Uh, the scenario is that somebody screwed up, and and you need to you need to face consequences of that, and and the, so you start to lose certain rights in that scenario, and there's only it only makes sense that someone should be tested to figure out why this happened. There's no rights there anymore. There's no more rights. Like you have a limited amount of rights now. And it's not a right to operate a motor vehicle. It's no, a it's a privilege. Privilege, one hundred percent. You have a license. There's not a company around that if you drive a forklift and you damage property or you have an accident, that doesn't require you to go take a drug drug test. How is that legal for a private company to do that? But then when we're we're, we're talking about a a, a man driving a six thousand pound truck that hits somebody seventy feet. Again, hit us so hard, knocked us both out of our shoes. I didn't think that was possible. Um, and, well, we can't go get a blood test because that would infringe upon his rights. It would be uh, his Fourth, fourth, fourth Amendment rights for illegal, uh, illegal search and seizure. That's, that's, that's what the, that's what the arg arg argument was. And the way that our law, uh, the, the spirit of our law was drafted is that um, – Again, the officer would have to get a warrant from a judge. And so once that, once that warrant is received from, from, from a judge, then they can go get blood. There hasn't been anybody that I haven't talked to that has either been a prosecutor or law enforcement or a state trooper that has said that a judge would have turn, turned them down in our, in our case. Absolutely not. Again, with reckless driving, with the smell of alcohol, um, and then the fact that what the PBT score was 50 minutes after, Tarif didn't even ask Corey if, if he would voluntarily take one. Didn't. It, that was never discussed with the supervisor. So when, when Tarif is, is making these two phone calls, never once is a blood test brought up on Tarif's side of the call which leads me to believe that it was being discussed on the other side of that, that, that call. That's the only thing that, that, that makes sense. You have somebody that has just killed somebody again, has seriously injured somebody else. And you, the trooper aren't asking your supervisor, Hey, should I, should I go take, take this guy in? Like, should I go get him a, a blood test? Like this is what he blew. No. Tarif told them what the PBT score was. And that conversation was on the other side. David Taylor, who was one of the other troopers on scene, asked Tarif if he was going to get blood. And Tarif's response to the other trooper was, no, all that was from last night. That was his reasoning, was that the alcohol 
um, was consumed last night. That that doesn't make any any sense to me at all. So he tells the other trooper they're not getting a blood test because all of this was from last night. Now, again, Corey couldn't tell you when he stopped drinking. Seven, eight, nine. Hell, I don't know. Now, fast forward to the last conversation that Tarif Al-Khatib has with his supervisor after making this statement to David Taylor. He had said to his supervisor, he said he stopped drinking about eight or nine o'clock, but I don't believe any of that. It's contradictory and complacency and absolute laziness. I, I know I support law enforcement 110%. Um, I don't believe that Tarif is an accurate depiction of what law enforcement is in our county. I believe that Tarif Algatib is an outlier and um, was just lazy and was trying to help a friend friend out. I, I believe that's that's what happened, and I don't believe he should be a trooper, and definitely shouldn't be a trooper here in Grayson County. When you start making decisions like like that you need to be removed and you need to be gone. Well, John, thank you so much for telling your story and coming on and just being so candid about everything. Again, I know like it's obviously painful and raw and you're welcome to come back on anytime you want if you have any updates or seriously if you just you if you just want to talk like it, we're open to have you on whenever. Incredible how strong you and your family are. I could not have gotten through this without their support um my my kids and I that's what we've relied on the past 17 18 months you take family for granted a lot just because they're always there when something like this happens you don't realize first off you don't realize how good you had something until something's gone and I mean gone like not coming back gone you don't realize how well your life was going until something is taken away, never to return, and not even a possibility. Um, and then you also don't really grasp how much your 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 family means to you until you need them, till you absolutely have to have them. Um, that's what. That's what I went through. That's what my kids went through. And I mean, Katie's mom and dad have been with us all the time in their, in their grieving. They, they just lost their daughter. No parent should ever have to lose their kid. It's not how it, how it works. Same with aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters uh, of, of Katie the support that we've had, even when they're going through their, their own grief, it's been amazing. That's just a debt that I'll never be able to repay. For what we've been through, we, we can still look back right now and say that we're still, we're still very, very fortunate and very lucky to have the family and the friends and the support of the community that, that we have. Man, I miss her 